Well, as you know, we are in the book of Acts, and last time we finished Acts chapter 1, so we are going to begin reading in Acts chapter 2, and uh, I was doing some study because I always kind of wondered, how long was it from the time of um, Jesus' ascension into heaven because remember he said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So how much time were they actually waiting? And in my study, I have found that it was somewhere between seven and ten days. So not necessarily extremely long. However, I would probably liken some of their anticipation to a little kid waiting for his birthday or for Christmas. And let me tell you, when I was a little kid, waiting for Christmas, the last ten days went the slowest ever. So I can imagine that even though it was a relatively short period of time, that it probably felt like forever. And it just reminds me of the way so many times God's timing is not our timing. Remember, he told Abraham, you will have an heir and you will have descendants that are as many as the sands on the seashore or the stars in the heavens. These are the metaphors that he laid out. And yet Abraham's sitting there in his 80s and 90s and nothing's happened. He said, will Eliezer be my heir? And God said, no, your heir will come from your loins. And it will come from Sarah as well. And then God, God pre-incarnate, Jesus in the Old Testament, came and visited Abraham and said, this time next year your wife will have a child. And Sarah laughed in the tent. When she's confronted about it later, she says, no, I did not laugh. But God knows everything. Even though she was in the tent, God knew. So all this to say that God's timing is the best timing. And so I titled my message this morning, The, wait is o- the Waiting is Over. And I, um, when we're waiting for something, when we're anticipating something, it can be, um, it, like I said, it can drag on. But God's timing is overall. And I just think about what we talked about this morning, how Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. Time is a construct that God gave to us. But as far as he is concerned as a being, he cares little for time as we understand it. He exists outside of time. And this really makes Jesus' sacrifice even all the more Amazing, because the one who existed outside of time chose to be confined by it. He saw the end from the beginning, and yet he chose to be confined by it. And the Bible says that every eye will see him, and will look on him that we pierced. What does that say to us? It says, not only did he choose that body for 33 human years, he chose that body for eternity. And I am humbled by that. So the first point that we have this morning 
is the Holy Spirit is a promise kept. Basically, the Bible is full of the promises of God. That's the basis for the Bible. If we remember back in Scripture, one of the first major promises God made was that He would never again flood the earth with water, the whole earth. This is why I believe in a literal worldwide flood. Because if this was just a regional flood, then God wouldn't have had to say with His rainbow in the clouds, I will never again flood the whole earth with water. And He would be a promise breaker if it was a regional flood because we see regional floods all the time. And so God is a promise keeper. And ever since he set his bow in the clouds, and even before that because he promised Adam and Eve that there would be a redeemer that would bring the human race back to God, God has been a promise keeper. And the the coming of the Holy Spirit is one of those promises. Jesus said, I will send you a comforter when I go to my Father. I will not leave you comfortless. Comfortless. I will send you a comforter that will guide you into all truth. And so we're going to read these first four verses and then have a few thoughts thereof. And when the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty as though of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, in this... Um, in this passage we see um, the mighty rushing wind on the day of the Pentecost but what do we see first what precipitated what, what preceded this they were all in one accord in one place the apostles the early church gives us a great model for unity the question that one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is when people look back at our church, at the church in 2018, I'm talking Church Universal here, because I'm not just talking about Holland Gospel Chapel. But will they be able to say they were all in one accord in one place? Is that the way that we wait upon God? I was really humbled and thoughtful when I read that phrase. That is the way God wants His church to be. And when we're not in one accord, that's when the devil starts putting footholds in the church. That's why we're so... We're much more likely to be uh, tossed by every wave of doctrine and things of that nature. So, so they were doing 
what God had said. He said, abide in Jerusalem, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And this was something that they couldn't miss. It wasn't like, is the Holy Spirit here or is he not here? said, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. So it filled where they were. And then it says, And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there's a lot of question today in the church about the prevalence of tongues today. I think you'll see as we go through this that the purpose of these tongues was very specific. There were people here who were gathering around the apostles as they began to speak that benefited from each of these tongues. This was not about grandstanding. It wasn't about a show. It wasn't about emotions. It was about the opportunity to share the gospel with people from other lands. It's interesting that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth. And of course, he's talking about the future, the, the distant future as they would spread out. But I also think he was talking about Acts chapter 2 here because it says there were people here, and we'll read as we go on, there were people here from many different Lands, many different locations. And so I think it's significant here that tongues had a place. And I've also heard stories about missionaries that go into a place and they don't know the language, but they're able to speak it because God gave them utterance for a particular purpose. But the two times that I have experienced, quote-unquote, tongues in the modern church, um, it has been outside of God's um, plan and definitely gave a spirit of disorder, not a spirit of order. So I think we need to keep that in perspective as we go on. Because God said, I am a God who does things decently, and in order. Alright. Can we look at Matthew chapter 3 verse 11 and 12. Matthew three eleven and 12 by way of cross reference. And if somebody can get there and stand and read it for us that would be awesome. This is basically John the Baptist talking about how Jesus' baptism would be different from his. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His mouthful cork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, so there's a couple aspects I want to talk about here. Is First of all, this is what Jesus is doing. 
he's baptizing the early church with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It says that the Holy Spirit was like tons of fire over their heads. Now that would have been an interesting thing to observe and be a part of, definitely. Um, I definitely think there's a little bit of metaphor here because he says like tongues of fire. Um, and so I think um, he's, he's giving you a, a word picture to think about. And uh, so that, that is interesting. And the other thing I wanted um, to mention is that uh, Jesus is talking about how he will basically judge the earth because he's talking about the people who you know baptized in the Holy Spirit and then he's talking about the chaff which he will drive away. In Psalm chapter 1 it says that the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And so anyone who says that God is love and never talks about the judgment of God has to avoid passages like this one in Matthew chapter 3. Because John the Baptist makes it very clear that that God is going is a God is a God of love, but He's also a God of judgment. And His love means so much to us as redeemed believers because we know that we needed redemption. My Lord and Savior did not hang on a Roman cross for sins He did not commit just because He was love. He hung on a Roman cross because the world hated Him and hated what he stood for. And more importantly, the devil hated him. He said, if the world hates you, don't worry, because it hated me first. That's why it hates you. And so I think we need to, as always, have a clear perspective on how things are going. John the Baptist did not get beheaded because he went around simply preaching that God is love. No, he got beheaded because he spoke out against the sins that were in his society. He told the king, you're not supposed to have your brother's wife. Now, I don't necessarily recommend that we um, randomly walk up to people that we know are living in sin and have this approach, but if God tells you that you need to approach someone who is in sin and tell them the truth, then you need to do it. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people miss, even in the church today, is that it's not, it's not a situation where, where you want to condemn the people and say that you're better than them. It's a situation of you want to say, God delivered me from sin, and I want the same thing for you. When we tacitly approve of someone and their lifestyle, we're not encouraging change, which is what the Holy Spirit of God does. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. How can they become new? How can we put on the new, as it says in Colossians, if we don't put off the old? Alright, so the first point that we had was the Holy Spirit is a promise kept. God is a promise-keeping God. You can go from Him saying Jesus is going to come to crush the serpent's head to the 
the promise of the rainbow and the flood, which, by the way, uh, if you have an opportunity, please take the opportunity to go to the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. I had the opportunity to go there last month with my family. Highly recommend. It was a very big encouragement to my family um, that even with all the darkness um, going forth in the world today, the gospel is going forth in a powerful way through both of those facilities in Kentucky. And so I want to continue to pray for them and just recommend those things highly to you. Um, and I and the cool thing is I have at least one non-Christian friend that I've been talking to for a long time about things of the world, or things of the word, I should say, and uh, she is interested in going to the ark. And so it's just another opening for us to discuss the things of the Bible. And I'm just really excited about that. Uh, the ark is especially very interesting and they give you a lot to think about. All right. So, the second point that I have is the purpose. What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit? The purpose of the Holy Spirit, of course, was to give us a comforter. But if we look at the big picture, the purpose was bringing Jesus to the world and building the church. Of course, we know that Jesus, in his physical being, went back to heaven to sit on the right hand of God. But he said, I will not leave you comfortless, as we talked about earlier, but I will leave my spirit who will guide you into all truth. And so God is going to begin, as we continue reading, his process of building the early church. And uh, so we're just going to read um, the second section, Acts 2, 5 to 11. And it says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men out of every nation under heaven. I find this interesting. That every nation that was currently under heaven at that time, it doesn't say almost every nation, it doesn't say approximately every nation. It says every nation. So there were people from the worldwide who were already coming to hear the gospel. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, this, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together, and they were confounded, because every man heard them speak in his own language. So this wasn't a language where people are like, why in the world would they be saying that? What in the world does it mean? No, it was a language so that every person, regardless of their language that day, could hear them. This is kind of like the reverse Tower of Babel. This is God bringing the nations back together after confounding the language in early Genesis. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying, Behold, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue where we were born. Interestingly here, most of Jesus' followers were not the learned of society. I think I read something to you. Uh, a 
few weeks ago when I was here about if the disciples had resumes, the resume company would disregard every single one except for one, and that was Judas Iscariot. And he ended up being the son of perdition. Jesus said, I have, of the ones you've given me, I've lost none, save the son of perdition. Who is Judas? And so these people are probably like, not only are they saying, aren't these Galileans, they're saying, well, I know they're fishermen, I know they're tax collectors, I know at least one of them was a zealot. And yet here they are speaking in these tongues that would take years probably to learn under normal circumstances. And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Philegia, um, Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Liberia about Cyrene and the strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. Now, I didn't research this specifically, but I wonder kind of how long Simon of Cyrene stayed in the area. Because we know, I know from my research that he probably took a very long journey to get to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so it's quite possible that he may have stayed in the area for a while, because when you take a long trip, you know, like us, we can get on an airplane and fly, uh, you know, several hundred miles away and then be gone for a week and come back because we can get back fairly quickly. But they couldn't. So I, I part of me just wonders if maybe Simon was here. I can't, I don't have any backing to that, but I just think of that because it mentions Cyrene here. And... Um, it mentions Cappadocia as well, and I wonder if, I didn't have this in my notes, but I wonder if we could look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1 real quick, and then we'll get back to um, where we were. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then he goes on from there. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied. So to, I, I was thinking that maybe, because... We'll get into Peter's sermon next time, but maybe Peter's writing this epistle to some of the people that were there on that day when he's speaking to them on the day of Pentecost. So that's just an interesting connection that I just made this morning as we're reading. Um, and uh, we'll continue to read this passage through 11 here. 
Um, and it's, and uh, um, Phrygia, Pamphylia in Egypt, and parts of Liberia about Cyrene, and the strangers in Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own tongues of the wonderful works of God. And uh, that is the purpose of these tongues, to speak to the wonderful works of God. Jesus makes allusion to the fact that the Spirit is to testify of Him. And so everything that is happening here is to bring glory to God and to add to the church of whom Jesus Christ is the head, as Paul tells us. So, there's a lot of places um, written here, and I'm sure that we could do studies on the, all these particular areas, um, but like I said, some of them were familiar to me. And um, so it says there are Jews and proselytes. So there were some who weren't Jews, and I believe that's alluding to the fact that they were devout in choosing to follow Judaism, and now they are finding out the fulfillment of Judaism, which is Jesus Christ. Um, Dr. A.J. Gordon tells of a Welsh preacher who had been scheduled to preach one night asking to be allowed to withdraw for a time before the service. He remained in seclusion so long that the good man of the house sent his servant to request him to come and meet the waiting congregation. As, he, as she came near to the room, she heard what seemed to be an in, indication of conversation between two parties, and in a subdued tone of voice, she caught the words, I will not go unless you go with me. Without interfering, she returned and reported, He will come all right. And the other will come too. And sure enough, when he came, the other one came along and with such power that it proved a wonderful service in which many found newness of life. It is both our privilege and duty thus to allow the Holy Spirit to work along with us as we endeavor to teach others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought that was a great picture of how we should live our lives and how I endeavor to do so as a preacher of the gospel. That I want to be in harmony with the Spirit. I want to be used by the Spirit. I have I went through a period early in my uh, ministry when I would make extremely detailed notes. And my concentration then became more about getting through the notes than about listening to the voice of God and what He wanted me to preach. So God really convicted me about that and 
caused me to simplify my notes and to allow him, through the Spirit of God, to preach what he wanted me to preach every Sunday morning. And what a, what a great prayer for every morning, no matter where you're going, whether it's being a mom to your children and teaching them for the day, or whether it's going out and working for your employer, or whether it's going to school, or wherever you're going, to say to God every morning, I will not go unless you go with me. That's what we need to make that an honest prayer of our life, an earnest prayer of our life, if we want the Holy Spirit to move, if we want to, to have revival, is to say, I will not go unless you go with me. It was very convicting and encouraging to me, and I trust it was to you as well. Titus chapter 2. 11 to 13, Titus 2, 11 to 13. If someone could read that for us, I would really appreciate it. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, it says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise when we are converted to the kingdom of God. And in this passage, it, it outlines some of the things that the grace of God does for us, that the Holy Spirit does for us. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly passions, to live soberly, righteously, in this present age. To live different lives. I think so many times it hurts me when I hear people say, well, can a Christian do this? Is it okay for a Christian to do this? Now, I understand that a lot of times we get caught up in things and, and, and if our Christian brothers have the liberty to do something that we in our conscience don't believe we do have the liberty for, it doesn't mean they're not believers. Please don't misunderstand me. But I do think we ask the wrong question often. Instead of, can a Christian do this? We should ask with the Apostle Paul, upon his conversion, what would you have me to do? That's a question that I'm sure, with 110% confidence that God will answer. What will you have me to do? Why, why am I confident in that? Because what did Jesus say he was here for? To do the will of his Father. So, if, if Jesus is our Savior, then our Father is God. So what should our, which, what should our goal to be? To do the, do the will of our Father. And... The grace of God has appeared to all men. And we hear all kinds of stories about how God is alive and well, even in communist countries, because his word will not be silenced. He says, my word will not return void, but will accomplish that for which I have sent it. 
I've heard many stories even recently of Muslims who have met Jesus in dreams, in visions, much as the Apostle Paul did. I have no reason to believe that that's not true because the power of God supersedes anything that we understand with our finite minds. The only thing I do know with 100% certainty is that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It's sad to me that so many of our Jewish brothers don't experience that redemption. That it was for them first. Even Paul says it. And yet, God is saving Jews. God is helping them to realize how it is to be a complete Jew, to follow the Jewish carpenter named Jesus, who gave everything for them, who fulfills every single prophecy of their Messiah. And the odds of that are astronomical, but it's because he is truly the one. I think of the passage in Acts as well. About the people walking to Emmaus, walking from Emmaus or to Emmaus. And it says, Jesus drew near and went with them. And surely through his Holy Spirit he does the same for you and me. All right, so our third point and final is this. The gospel accepted and rejected. It says in verse 12 of Acts chapter 2, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. You know, when you espouse a Christian belief, a belief in a fixed standard of how to live your life, people aren't going to like you. Matter of fact, Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Because the fact of the matter is that the beliefs that we have are radical. We believe there's only one way to heaven. We believe that that way is Jesus Christ. We believe that he is fully God and fully man. That there wasn't a time when he was just human and then the spirit indwelled him and he became divine. No, he was divine from before he was conceived. He was eternal. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when you say that God says that marriage is a sacred covenant between a man and a woman for life, the world scratches their heads and says, it's just a piece of paper. Why do I need that? When you say that babies who are unborn in the womb, are 
created by God in His image for His purpose. They say, get your hands off my body. Somehow in our society, if you want a baby, then it's a baby. If you don't, it's not. But Jesus said, even back in His day, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Jesus didn't pull punches when he was talking to the leaders of his day. He wasn't crucified because he just went around lovey-dovey and he never called anybody out on their sin. No, he was crucified because he called the Pharisees, who incidentally were the religious leaders of the day, he called them a brood of vipers. He called them hypocrites. So they had no choice in their human understanding but to crucify him. You notice they never denied the resurrection. They just wanted to make sure that the people didn't understand it. You can also notice that when he did miracles, they never denied the miracles. And they never really even denied that he was God. They just said, he is taking the nation away from us. He is removing our popularity. He is stealing who we are for himself. When John the Baptist had the exact opposite approach, he must increase and I must decrease. See, it's not about me. That's why my ministry is called speaking for him it's about him and now I'm privileged to have that license plate on my car thanks to my mom and dad so every time I'm driving on the highway people will see it and hopefully it will bring to their mind who the him is because the him makes all the difference in the world to me So, when you are presented with the gospel, you have two choices. You can either mock, or by the grace of God, you can marvel at the truth. Um, uh, we, there's a song that says, Once I trembled at the law, I'd spurn. When you realize how insignificant you are in the face of a holy God, but then you realize His redemption, then you can have joy in your heart. And you can know that He will never leave you, nor forsake you. I will just... Close with this. Well, first, if somebody can look up 1 Corinthians 1.18. 1 Corinthians 1.18, just very quickly. Just a quick verse dealing with the difference between the world's response to the cross and ours. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved 
This is very reminiscent of the verse I mentioned earlier. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to everyone that believeth. If you don't believe, there's no power. And so the gospel is foolishness. But when you believe, a whole new world where you can know that you have eternal life is opened up to you. A soap manufacturer and an evangelical preacher were walking together, the former not being a Christian. The soap maker said, The gospel you preach has not done much good, for there is still a lot of wickedness and thousands of wicked people. The pastor was silent for a while, and in a few moments they passed a child making mud pies in the street. He was exceedingly dirty. Then the preacher's turn came. Soap has not done much good in the world, for I see there is still much dirt, and ever so many dirty people. Oh well, said the manufacturer, soap is only useful when it is applied. Exactly, replied the other. So it is with the gospel. For the people on the Titanic, or any boat for that matter, if they did not choose, to get into the lifeboat, they sank and perished. The lifeboat is available if we but choose it. And if you choose to follow God and you choose to do His will, then uh, you can go from being one that has... No room in your heart for God, no room in your heart for peace, no room in your heart for joy to um, one that has a melody in your heart. 